I didn't think, and I still don't believe, that to be an effective performance director or head coach, you have to be an arse. Hi, and welcome to another episode of 80% Mental, a podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance. My name is Dr. Pete Olushaga, and I'm joined as usual by Hugh Gilmore. Each episode, we're going to ask a question about the psychology of sport, and we'll then spend some time trying to answer that question. In episode one, we spoke to Dr. Jonathan Fader to try and get a handle on what sports psychology actually is and what it isn't. And we learned about some of the key psychological skills that athletes might find useful, as well as some of the ways that sports psychs and coaches might work together too. This week, we've got another great question and another fantastic guest who's going to help us answer it. So I want to get straight to that question, which is, is there such a thing as a winning mindset? And if there is, what is it and how do I get one? So to try and answer that question, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the work that has tried to establish the mental qualities, the personality characteristics, uh, maybe the attitudes shared by the world's top sport performers. We'll talk about what that all means and whether it's really possible to learn how to think like a winner. As I mentioned, we've got a fantastic guest on this week's show, and I'm really genuinely pleased to welcome Professor Dave Collins. Now, normally I'm going to try and keep the guest introductions fairly brief, but I think this one is worth reading out in full. So if you just bear with me for a minute, I'm going to do that. Professor Dave Collins is a professorial fellow at the University of Edinburgh and director at Grey Matters Performance Limited. As an academic, Dave's got over 350 peer-reviewed publications and 70 books or book chapters. And as a practitioner, he's worked with over 70 world or Olympic medalists. Dave's got his head in his hands right now. I should have, I should have got out more. I'm really <laughs> um, plus, plus professional teams and performers. Dave has coached to a national level in three sports, is a fifth Dan black belt in karate, the director of the Rugby Coaches Association, fellow of the Society of Martial Arts and Bases, and an associate fellow of the BPS. And to top it all off, Dave is an ex-Royal Marine as well. Dave, welcome to 80% Mental. Thank you very much indeed. Can I, can I just ask, what are the three sports that you've coached to a, to a national level? Um, uh, martial arts, weightlifting, rugby. Okay, awesome. Um, and Hugh, Hugh, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Pete. I'm very excited. Uh, it's not often you get to question one of the big heavy hitters of sports psychology. Um, something I learned about Dave recently was that he also studied REBT like myself uh, in the Albert Ellis Institute in New York City. Um, but Dave did the same course three years before I was born. So that sort of gives I'm you... I'm sure they haven't changed the lecture notes to you. I wouldn't worry. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that just gives you the level of experience uh, that he's bringing to the podcast today. So I'm really excited. And I think this is going to be one of the best episodes of this season. Yeah, I'm sure he says that every week, Pete, but he's a very nice, he, he does lie so beautifully. Well, I'm, I'm a bit worried that we might have peaked too soon. This is only episode two. It's uphill from here, mate. You're right. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's hope that's the case anyway. Okay, so I guess, first of all, just to get us into this idea of, quote unquote, a winning mindset, we should probably spend some time defining what that actually is, because it's one of those terms that's thrown around a lot. And to be honest, that's why we've phrased this week's question that way. But what are we talking about when we talk about a winning mindset? Is it personality? Are we talking about attitude? Is it a set of mental skills or abilities? I, I just wonder, Dave, what are your thoughts on, on that? How do we define winning mindset? You're right, it's, it's probably thrown around too much. It's another term like, I don't know, mental toughness is another one. Uh, resilience is a third. There are lots of these terms that, that have quite a bit of face validity and everybody likes them and they sound sexy or whatever, whatever. But you're absolutely right that unless you define them and, and, and operationalize them, you probably, uh, you know, it, it's just a waste of time. Um, so is there, a min, is there a winning mindset? Well, yes, but that winning mindset operates at different times and different contexts in different ways. 
So there are, for me, at least three mindsets. One would be a training mindset. One would be the competition mindset. And one would be when the S hits the fan mindset. Stop me if I'm getting too technical. And then, of course, there's probably a fourth, which was getting there, if that makes sense. So if you say there are getting their pressures and staying their pressures, there are therefore getting their skills and staying their skills. But at the least at the top end, those the mental the, the winning mindset will be in three cases. You've got to train very, very hard or you won't get there and stay there. You've got to prepare yourself well with the right attitude to competition. And then, of course, when uh, the, the fans are getting clogged, you've got to really be uh, – that's when, that's when the, the going do keep going and, and you see it again. So that blanket term, I'm afraid, covers a multitude of sins or multitude of specialisations. So what I'm hearing there, Dave, is you've broken down mindset into different areas and domains where someone is going to be, have to be thinking about uh, a specific problem or a performance area, whether it's the development kind of mindset or the delivery mindset uh, where they're actually having to put down a performance on a given day. You've also turfed out a lot of common parlance terms that are very well used and very popularized in sports psychology and especially sports psychology marketing uh, materials, socially desirable terms like mental toughness and resilience. Um, you've also mentioned about face validity. I My personal view is that I don't think face validity exists. I think uh, it's the same as confirmation bias and I don't see how somebody could tell the two apart. But you know, face validity is a very specific technical term that a psychologist might use. Could you explain that for somebody who is like a beginner level coach uh, who wouldn't understand what face validity is or the ins and outs of it, please? I think, uh, I think that's a, it's a very fair question. Sorry, sorry. For, if, if that's the worst language I used this afternoon, then, that, then we'll, we'll all be in good shape. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you're right. And of course, the problem is that it, you know, when, when you have what I would describe as a face valid term, it's the face that a term that people seem to go, yeah, oh, that makes sense. So winning mindset, yeah, well, I wanted to win. It's mental winning mindset that works, yeah. Um, but and so your problem becomes that it, it's it's the it's in the eye of the beholder or in the eye of the listener, ear of the listener, that someone hears mental, you know, winning mindset and says, yes makes sense to me of course we want athletes to have a winning mindset but they then probably construct that themselves and then you add on social construction so that they talk to other people about what that means and now all of a sudden things are really getting complicated because what pete might think and what hugh might think are subtly different or pete and hugh might play for the same club and be, t- be chatting away for it so they form a sort of a common or shared mental model so it, things become difficult um, if, if, if I use, I'll use mental toughness as a real good example. There's a perfectly good, theoretically grounded term called mental toughness. It's from the work of a guy called Dinespear, and he he defined it. He operationalized it through a, a pattern of biochemical reaction to pressure, to stress. He showed how you could change it, and it was perfectly good. And then all of a sudden, someone decided to do a study that qualitatively asked about mental toughness, and then the world's just gone there. Yeah. So, as as you know, we've got to be very careful, gents, that we're not estate agents. You know, we're not the guys who write those menus that make everything you know, sound yummy, and that what we actually are is we use scientific terms. Now we can simplify them by all means, but we need to be able to go the extra steps. So we've done a lot of research in, in mental toughness and found that that was a construct that might vary between lower-level teams, international teams, and coaches. So when you start, define what you're after. Short answer, therefore, is if a coach says to me, Dave, I want you to work on the player's winning mindset, my first question is, what's that then? What will that look like? How will I know? How will you know? How will we know that we've accomplished it? Or how will we know we're not getting there? Cool. Pete, what are your thoughts on this? 
Well, I think Dave's absolutely right, Hugh. I, I, I love what Dave said about being able to use really simple terms to describe scientific concepts and having the ability to do that, but also making sure that we are being scientific and we are defining them, them properly. I think we have to be really careful about the terms that we use and make sure we're giving that proper attention to defining them, both for ourselves as practitioners and academics, but perhaps more importantly, even in the way that we talk about those things with athletes and, and coaches. I think when most people talk about something like mindset, what they're probably thinking about is personality. And a lot of times coming at that from a trait approach. So this idea that we're predisposed to behave in certain ways because of innate characteristics that we have, and the idea that these characteristics or traits generally don't change much over time. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. One athlete, I was working with a group of athletes, and it was just an introductory session to, to sports psychology. And, and one of them, and, and I'll paraphrase what he actually said, but he basically stood up in the middle of the session and said, look, I'll break it down for you. Either you've got it or you ain't. And it's as simple as that. So there's this idea um, that people are just born winners, that you know, winning mindsets often viewed as something that people just have or don't have. Um, and again, I just wondered what you what you maybe make of, of that idea that uh, when people think about mindset or winning mindset, they're thinking about personality. Right. A couple of things. Firstly, people talk about personality traits as innate, um, which I always say, so, so they dropped out the womb with them then. Yeah. And, and I don't necessarily think there's a lot of evidence that people do drop out of the womb with all the characteristics that are going to make them. So for me, it's more nurture than nature. That's the first thing. The second thing is that personality traits must be modifiable. Otherwise, why are we psychologists sitting here? Because Hilgard and Atkinson, Introduction to Psychology, page one, definition of psychology to explain, predict, and modify behavior. So that's what you'd like to see. Third thing, uh, personality traits, they're, they're characteristics, and any characteristic brings with it a strength and weaknesses. So there are certain bits of, in me, and they're mostly there because of mum and dad and, and lots of experiences, but I know those characteristics make me very good in certain circumstances and not so good in other circumstances. So when we go, here's this, this winning mindset, and we go, oh, well, of course, that person's got all those personality characteristics. We've got to be very careful where they came from, how long they're there, how we need to modify them, um, and, of course, uh, the, recognize that we need to accentuate the strengths and minimize the weaknesses from those personality characteristics. A final thing, of course, is that they're contextual. Um, so is that, do you want the next question, or would you like an example? An example would be brilliant, Dave. An example, right? So we know that from we know from lots of the literature that there is solution-focused coping and emotion-focused coping. I'm me. I'm solution-focused. I see a problem. I try and solve it, which is brilliant as a sports psychologist. It's very useful as a combat soldier or a rugby player. But both my first wife and my second wife would agree it makes me an absolute bugger to live with because. I try and solve problems that they don't want solved. So my strengths, my solution focus orientation is fantastic at certain times and rubbish at other times. So what we're talking about there is a, an interaction effect. Um, there's some research, for example, to suggest that there are personality differences between uh, top-level elite athletes and recreational athletes. So elite athletes, for example, uh, score higher on extroversion and are more emotionally stable, for example. So if we just looked at that on a surface level, we could describe some of those characteristics, those personality traits, as being part of a winning mindset. Another study, I think, found that personality test scores could predict whether junior elite athletes, and we'll, we'll leave the phrase junior elite for another day um but the personality test scores could predict whether they progress to the professional level um many years later i think it was uh, conscientiousness and, and group orientation were some of those characteristics um but actually what you're saying dave is that contextual factors are really important um and again if we kind of 
go beneath the surface and look at some of the research there um, there's some studies that show swimmers for example swim faster when they're in teams than they do individually so there's something about the environment that's um, having an impact on the way that they're performing not just their own kind of personality characteristics um, uh, again if we go back to kind of extroversion and, and introversion there's some evidence to say that extroverted athletes seem to now let me rephrase that athletes who score higher on extroversion seem to outperform athletes who score higher on introversion when an audience is present but not when there's no audience present so again you know we've got these contextual factors having an impact on on performance um interacting with personality characteristics so the idea of a of a winning mindset in terms of just thinking about personality traits and personality characteristics just seems a little bit too simple dave at the start you mentioned four different types of mindset and so forth and i'm aware that a large amount of your work is based on pcdes uh, which is obviously psychological characteristics for developing excellence, which encompass 10, you know, characteristics as identified in the literature. Um, they seem to me to be less about characteristics and more about an approach to doing things. You mentioned about operationalizing these assets or specific characteristics. Can you explain a little more on how that differs from ideas around personality? But the idea of the PCDE stuff is that it's a set of skills. That's all it is. It's a hand of cards that says, what do you want? So if, if Coach Pete says, I want, I want resilience, I go, fine. So now I work with my players and I go, right, for you, resilience is going to be a little bit of self-regulation, a lot of goal setting, a bit of commitment. Hugh, it's good for you. It's going to be a different recipe. So all the PCDEs are a set of skills. They're actually, the full title for them is the psychobehavioral characteristics of developing excellence in that they're, they're mental stuff made, made real in terms of behavior. So that's where we're coming from. Now, a personality trait might work like that or it might not. But the, another thing about personality traits is if, for example, you could imagine that I have a personality trait to be aggressive, God forbid, but if I did, then how I would come over might not be. If, for example, I'm talking to the two of you on a Saturday night, I'm not going to come over as an aggressive because you're both, you know, you're both likely to uh, a kick my bum and b run away faster than I can catch you. So the context will change how my trait manifests itself. If, however, I've got a set of skills and I go, I want to sort this situation, then I can use my tact and diplomacy card, which is unbelievably good and all sorts of other skills to actually solve the problem so think of pcdes as a set of a set of a set of skills a hand of cards and you teach those skills and then you assist your athlete in how she or he might play that hand of cards in a particular context okay so pcdes are kind of like uh, the liam neeson uh, version of these set of particular skills that'll make uh, them difficult for the competition uh is that is that fair to say yeah i mean if that's what we're trying to do but they'd also of course and if we go back to those those you know the one plus three that we started with in terms of performance mindset let's just think about okay let's think about all four getting their skills pcdes assist an athlete to make the most of the pathway that she or he's in uh training skills the pcdes can assist the athlete to make the most of the training situation, to make sure that they're, they're training at a sufficient quality, to make sure that they make best use of feedback, that they seek support where they need it. Um, the PCDEs can assist them in the immediate competition preparation in terms of, for example, they might deploy some imagery or they might work on their focus and distraction control. And then, of course, in the fan-clogging moments where it's really up against it, um, the commitment, the determination... The, uh, the focus are the things that will bring them through. So again, think of equipping people with a set of skills that they can then deploy in various combinations to best effect. So we've talked about this idea of 
the winning mindset as being perhaps a little bit more complex than just a set of personality traits. And we've talked about the PCDE approach, which Dave, you described as um, a set of skills, I suppose, that people can choose from to deal with various situations that they might encounter. Um, I wanted to touch on this idea that the performance environment is actually really complex and the pathway to elite performance, the pathway to success is really complex as well. So reading some of the work you did, Dave, with Anya McNamara back in 2010, you talked about these macro stages of development. So largely based on on Jean Cote's work, um, where you talked about sampling years athletes just trying out a few different sports it's largely about fun at that point uh, specialization years where athletes are starting to focus on maybe one or two sports um, starting to compete at perhaps lower levels and the investment years where really a lot of time and efforts being put into training athletes are starting to compete at a high level um, and we can add on to that maintenance years as well. So once we reach a fa- fairly high level of competition, we need to be able to maintain that level of success as well. Um, I, I guess the point is that if athletes are going through these different stages of development, then the psychological characteristics, um, the mindset that they are going to, to require is going to be very different at those different stages. If you add on to that the idea that pathways to excellence might be very sport specific as well i think one of the examples in the paper was that a sprinter can achieve early success based on just physical characteristics so if you can run really fast if you're big and strong when you're young you're going to achieve success early whereas a gymnast or a pole vaulter needs a certain level of technical ability so they're going to develop that skill a little bit later on um given all of that complexity um you know, surely the idea of a a winning mindset is a bit of a nonsense. It's a bit ridiculous, really. Um, how do coaches, how do psychologists, and you know, even athletes, how do how do we navigate all of that complexity? What sort of things should we be working on? What you've just basically said is why it depends. It and and you avoid like the plague anybody who says they have the answer. Japanese proverb: If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Because no one knows the answer. No one knows it. And therefore, what you've got to be careful of is that you acknowledge and you cater for that complexity. Pete, you've just gone through some of the complexities. Yeah. Uh, You can add, of course, the individual, the contact, the the whole lot. And so what you need to do is to be able to to have the sense to cope with that complexity, To, to think that you can hand coaches a set of cards from which they can select a technique and say, oh, I'll try that today. It, no, because it might be great. It might be a great idea, but it might be the worst idea out in this circumstance. So the whole of the process of coaching, the whole of the process of performance psychology, indeed, the whole of the purpose, the whole of the process of us dealing with each other as individuals, our interpersonal skills are surely built on a sense of it depends. They're built on a sense of acknowledging and recognising that complexity. So I, I guess that the, the simple answer is that if that complexity is inherent, that doesn't mean you don't attempt it. You just go, this is too complex, la, 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 I don't do it. But it means you have to really, you really have to study. I love being a performance psychologist. I love being able to try to help people to perform much better than I ever could have. I wish I'd had a performance psychologist, yeah? But it's me trying to help them do as well as they can do, and that involves me getting to appreciate all the complexities around where they are, if that makes sense. So here we go, Dave. We want performance and confidence as a practitioner, but to be aware and have healthy doubt. But if you have an athlete at the starting line of a 100-meter Reis, is there any time to be aware and have this doubt then? Uh, surely we don't want doubt on the start line. Um, we see doubt as acceptable and necessary as a high-performing practitioner, but uh, what about competition? Talk me through that, Dave. What are your thoughts? Context is king, yeah. Um, in my previous role as a, as a young officer, we, we start getting shot at, and I go, now, boys, should we go left flanking or right flanking? Let's have a focus group. What do you all think? Let's have a vote. Probably not. If, however, 
we're planning something to do in five days' time, I ask for opinions, yeah, because there's a lot of skill there. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you're right. And, of course, I am oozing confidence a couple of minutes before the, before the off because there's no point in doing else. Yeah. yeah? Um, I'm careful that I don't ooze so much confidence that the person thinks I'm a, you know, mindless twit. But, of course, there is a context to it. Yeah. yeah? And an awareness of that context and an awareness of what's appropriate at the different times through the village, into the competition, in the qualifying rounds, into the final, is key. If you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, please do leave us a review, preferably a good one. And also you can subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Now, we've already mentioned a few of the kind of magic psychology words earlier on, things like mental toughness, things like resilience. And in fairness, we did talk about the importance of being scientific in our definitions of those things. We've also just talked about the complexity of the performance environment. So I just want to take a minute to talk about, I guess, a a popular idea that having a specific kind of mindset is absolutely absolutely key to, to success, almost going back to some of the personality stuff we were talking about earlier. And I'm thinking specifically about the late Kobe Bryant here and the Mamba mentality. Now, Kobe created this persona where his mindset was almost obsessive. And this Mamba mentality was about prioritizing sport and prioritizing, you know, achieving in sport over having any sort of normal or balanced life. You know, it's about being the first one in the gym and the last one out. But, you know, some of the stories that you hear about Kobe seem to take that sort of mentality to extreme levels. You know, for example, you hear about teammates wanting to impress, so they get to practice a few hours early. They're there in the gym at 6 a.m., only to find that Kobe's there in a full sweat, having, you know, been working out since 3 a.m. And you see a similar sort of drive and obsessiveness from Michael Jordan in the Last Dance documentary. And a lot of young athletes, and I suppose a lot of coaches as well, would buy into this idea that they need to be obsessive Um, at the expense of everything else in their lives as well in order to be successful and I just wonder what we what we make of that you know what are the dangers of young athletes and and even coaches looking at that sort of almost obsessive behavior and really aspiring to it seeing that as what if I want to win if I want to be successful I have to be that obsessive Um, you know what do we think about the dangers I guess of that type of mentality people who are successful in any walk of life, I think even the priesthood are moderately obsessive. Yeah? They're driven, they want to succeed, they want to achieve. Are there dangers to that? Yes. Um, should we therefore prevent it? No. We should make sure that people are aware of the downsides and we should work with them to mitigate or moderate the downsides. But training hard, I, I, I now have metal knees. And I have metal knees for a number of reasons, but one reason is because at, at, at 17 and a half stone, I did 80 miles a week in boots and pack. Yeah? Um, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. But if someone had said to me, you know what, Dave, uh, this will happen to you by the time you're 60 odd, and I'd have gone, yeah, but will I achieve now? then I'd have done it twice as hard because I was an obsessive idiot. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I wanted to make. But that was my call. And so, therefore, informing people of the consequences of your actions, I think, is important. When the obsession is someone else's, that's when you start getting into trouble. But let me give you a counterposition. There are lots of experts in parenting in sport now, Okay. Um, and I have, the, I have the pleasure of working with a, a lady who is uh, doing a doctorate in just that area to try and get some evidence behind it. And if you, if you don't know about the questionnaire, go and find the passion questionnaire from Valeran Go. So this is Robert Valeran's idea of passion being either harmonious, so in line with our life goals, we're taking joy from doing activities, we feel happy while we're doing them, um, or passion being obsessive, where we feel compelled 
almost to participate, to keep pushing to the next level, almost like you can't do anything else for fear of missing an opportunity to get better. Um, and this is the kind of thing that we are seeing and hearing from athletes like Kobe Bryant and, and, and Michael Jordan. But that passion is what, I mean, you know, I've, I've been, been with my, my youngest daughter this morning. She's, she's into riding and she's passionate about it. And I love that. And I, I don't care whether it's riding or skateboarding or I prefer it was rugby, but never mind. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, I don't care what she's passionate about so long as she has passions. And, me, and part of my role as a parent and part of my role as a coach and part of my role as a performance psychologist is to moderate and direct as appropriate those passions. Okay? No, no one knocks that. No one says that, uh, well, lots of people get concerned about musicians, for example, who might practice five or six hours a day. Again, with you know, some of our doctoral work on the, the more is better, of course it is, just go and practice. I suffered from my art, you're going to suffer from my art. So I don't see this obsession as being a particularly sport event. I think it's a life event. I think it's a human event. It's a human condition. And if we'd stopped, you know, if it, I think if we were to think that, whether there are harmonious passions and, as you've said, obsessive passions and that we need to, to look at the interaction between those and what it's doing to the individual. So it was, it was appropriate for me as a psychologist to suggest to someone, look, um, you're probably not going to be a, a fantastic high jumper. You're five foot six and you're not particularly springy, Yeah. So I know you love it, you, and you'll reach a certain level, but is that enough? Because if it won't be enough, do you want to make a change of direction now? Talking through with my client what, what she or he wants and whether she or he is going the right way about it is, for me, part of my responsibility to them, to ask the hard questions and to wait for the hard answers. Does that help? It, it does, yeah. And I think the key thing for me that you, you mentioned there was when that that passion is someone else's. And and I guess that's kind of part of the question I was asking, you know, that if, if coaches kind of buy into this stuff, these these buzzwords and these kind of exciting things, you know, the Mamba mentality, we've got to have all of our athletes, we've got to have that. If coaches buy into that sort of thing and try and instill that in their, in their athletes, I guess maybe that's when there's a, the, an issue that we need to, look at or, or resolve if they're pushing way. that at 18 you can understand it if they're pushing it at eight yeah sure so obsessive passion has been linked in the literature to things like burnout to stress to negative affect um hugh do you have any thoughts on this are there any dangers associated with taking um a winning mentality to some of the extremes that we hear about with with athletes like kobe bryant you know, I, I suppose in my experience of working with athletes, I, I often see a lot of people who are, you know, what I would say is verging toward, towards perfectionistic. And it, it can be catastrophic at times because they have that drive and passion, as, as Dave talks about, but it's a double-edged sword um, in that you're never quite good enough. But again, even though as a psychologist working on a multidisciplinary team, uh, you know, the team berates itself on, we have this problem, we're solving it now, why could we not solve it three weeks earlier? And it's because in performance environments, there's there's always a never-ending pursuit for, can we do this three weeks earlier? Um, I think that's just part of the game in a performance environment. You're always chasing that just slightly better. Uh, so I think, you know, yeah, I think what you're talking about there in terms of passions uh, is that, you know, it's great that people have those passions, but it's also, you know, be aware of the double-edged sword while at the same time... There's probably a really good point of celebrating their achievements when they occur, and that will be a moderating effect to some of the downsides that could occur. Dave, would you have anything to add add to that? It's, it, it's helping people just have a sense of perspective, but it's their perspective. You know, one, one man's balanced lifestyle is another man's, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I was obsessive about my sports. I was obsessive about my careers. I am obsessive about my career. Um, and some people might look and say, well, that's very unhealthy. And they're probably right. But that's all right, because 
it means I'll leave the building quicker. There'll be more courier left for everybody else. But it's 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 just trying to put you know it's trying to push through. It's what what are your priorities? My priorities are these. Great, let's go for it. Yeah, but let's go for them in an ethical sense. Okay, Dave, I'm going to come at you with a hard challenge here. You're a no-bullshit, straight-talking kind of guy. What would happen if I said PCD's psychological characteristics for developing excellence, to give them the full title, is just a marketing scheme for grey matters? And like, how is that any different to the way some charlatans – now, I'm not saying you're a charlatan, but how, how is that any different to the way some people who are charlatans – promote non-evidence-based practice within psychology, such as Myers-Briggs type inventory or MBTI? Well, it's not a case of a random... I mean, if I'm selling it, if it's a marketing ploy, I'm pretty rubbish at it because we started the work on this in 1990 and we've only just uh, marketed it. So, you know, 28, a 28-year sales loop is probably not very good. Um, I don't think so. I think there's a... I mean, firstly, there's a strong literature-based and a strong empirical base to what we do and why we do it. Secondly, increasingly and very pleased, other people are using it and coming up with the same results. So if, you know, if we've conned them, then we've conned them pretty well. Yeah. Um, no, I don't, I, I don't think that's fair, but uh, then I wouldn't, would I? I'm sure there would be people on um, Twitter or other social media who, who, might, who might suggest that uh, it, it isn't a positive tool. Um, all I can say is, it's, it works well, it's worked for us, but most importantly, it's worked for lots of other people as well. Because if you develop an idea in our field, you want other people to be able to use it. If it only works for Collins, then that's not a very good tool, is it? I suppose not. You might try them yourself, you, <laughs> you little thing. <laughs> yes, you're right. It's something something that, that I do regularly use uh, in my work with Pathway. Um, and, you know, it's it's admirable that the process is, you know, so clear and the evidence base is there for supporting it. But like, I think I'll just comment to that. We're science, and therefore, what should happen? Peer review for all, but it's got all sorts of problems and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, is the process we work to. So anything we ever do, we put out there for peer review. It's open access. You can try it. Pete can try it. Anybody can try it. Yeah. What we've done, and you're right. Uh, is to take is because people so many people have said I really want to use this really want to use this is we've electric you know we we we've an electronic version of the questionnaire with a, an administered and an assisted feedback but that's in response to people asking us it's not where we started so if I design a questionnaire the basis of that questionnaire should be peer reviewed it shouldn't be something that's kept magically back as for example a lot of questionnaires have been in the past in sport and outside sport mm-hmm. so there's a real history of sports psychologists getting a bad rap with questionnaires and on on one of my first times i deployed a questionnaire uh, at at the request of a clinical psych that i was working with the response i got was um you fucking psychologists all you fucking want is us to do questionnaires and at that point, I realized that questionnaires might damage my relationship with the athletes that I'm working with. And it's, it's kind of caused me a bit of, of grief there. Um, it, is this something like this overuse of questionnaires? Is that a common thing in sports psychology? Or, or how do you like get the balance there? Any thoughts on that? I think it's a common thing in some fields of psychology. Um, I, I remember a case of a very high-status um, British sports psychologist working with an international team who told all the athletes two hours before a world championship competition that they had to complete his questionnaire. And some of, most of them did. Two of them gave him two fingers. And that, for me, was a massive code of conduct issue. Unfortunately, no one would complain. Yeah? But, um, but that, I don't think, is the use of the questionnaires. That's just uh, balls-out stupidity, on the part and and lack of empathy it's there are too many people in our field who are all about me and not all about them so uh we've talked in the past about the idea of psychology uh through psychology of and psychology for in this case sport i can study psychology through sport 
or through music or through dance, but I'm really interested in psychology. I'm really interested in the page numbers. Or I can develop a literature, the psychology of sport. And, and that's good, you know, and I can, you know, I can, I can gain readership or I can get promoted or whatever, whatever. What I think I'm interested in most of the time is psychology for sport. I'm interested in the sport performance. I'm interested in the performer. Yeah. And in, note, I'm interested in them as a performer. I'm also interested in as a person, but I'm interested in a performer because that's why we've made this alliance. Yeah, if they wanted me to work with them as a counsellor, we make a different alliance. And and that, for me, that's where it's going. When people start using questionnaires, very often it's a recipe solution. Or often it's because they're a little bit, they're new in the field and they're a little bit nervous about how they should come over. Yeah, and, and that's understandable. And it doesn't mean you trash it. It just, you know, for the, for the guys who work with me under supervision, I'm just going, there are often better ways to do it. Yeah, it depends. So sometimes a questionnaire is useful because it summarizes stuff and you can share it across. If it's a standardized measure, it's very useful. Um, uh, flip, flip me. Um, diagnosis of, um, of clinical issues is mostly by diagnostic statistical manuals and stuff like that. So it's how often someone experiences a certain case. So, of course, questionnaires have their part. Yeah, I just don't think they're the whole, the whole nine yards. Okay. They're a bit. They're a tool. Pete, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, Dave, about newly qualified psychologists. And I think back to my own MSc, my own master's degree, and the fact that, you know, you come out of that with essentially a whole folder full of questionnaires for different circumstances or different different things that athletes might present with. And there's a real temptation to go into applied practice. You know, the first time you sit down with an athlete to think, okay, well, they're talking about anxiety so I need to do an anxiety questionnaire to find out a little bit more about it or they're talking about confidence right let's do a confidence questionnaire and just to almost kind of bombard them with paper and pen exercises um, I personally try and avoid using questionnaires wherever possible obviously there's a place for it but you know I personally like talking to people I like listening to people and I think that a lot of times not always but a lot of times you can get the same information that you would get from a questionnaire um, by talking to somebody rather than getting them to sit down and fill in a, a, a form um, I think another thing to mention here is accessibility um, and by that I mean we can't make an assumption that everybody that we sit down with is capable of reading and understanding the content of these psychological questionnaires. Um, I think it's important as a practitioner to be able to um, help check for understanding um, and to maybe even provide alternative methods of completing some of these questionnaires, whether that's on an electronic device or whether that's sitting down and going through each question with an athlete, checking that they understand what um, what's required of them. And again, that's going to be different in different settings, but I think it's something that's perhaps important to mention, um, that handing out questionnaires isn't often as easy a method of collecting data as we might think it is. I think your points are very fair. Um, being new in the game is one of several factors that might, you know, might sort of encourage or, or you know, make someone give someone a tendency to use a questionnaire or not. I don't think it's the only one. No, no. You know, I would, I would use questionnaires at my late stage in, in my career um, for certain purposes. Um, and I'd be very clear about those purposes. And I'd have established a trust, a, 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 you know, a sort of an environment of trust with my client so that that's, that's what we do. Um, you know, it's not a case. I think if you, get the, if you get the information just by talking to them, that's a good way to do it. Personally, I like to get it by questionnaire, get it by observation, get it by talking to them and triangulate. Yeah, it's a triangulation, isn't it? Using multiple methods to kind of do a, a, a real thorough needs analysis of, of, of the athlete that you're working with. And it's so interesting when, you, when that triangulation doesn't work because it tells you all sorts of things about the social constructivism of the athlete, how the, how the athlete is putting things together. I do a lot of work in academies or with young, you know, young up-and-comers. Uh, that's athletes, not, not psychologists. 
And what you're looking at is, okay, that's interesting. You answered it like this. You say it's like this. Yeah? Hmm. That's interesting. Let's tease that out. Yeah? Um, I, I think that when used like that, that's a really powerful tool. People tend to like numbers. That's why lots of people are into psychophysiology. That's why they're, they're into rating scales and, and heart rates and, and et cetera, and, and heart rate variability. But again, psychophysiology, one of the biggest challenges in psychophys, and I did my doctorate in it, is the interpretation of the data. And that interpretation requires, again, some degree of triangulation. So questionnaires, yeah, they're okay. They're a tool. Use them, you know, use them in the right place. Don't in the wrong place, you're in good shape. So I suppose really in the elite performance environment, what we are doing for triangulating is actually possibly questionnaires, the the common chat that you would have with an athlete. And then on top of that, you're probably also listening to what the rest of your multidisciplinary team are saying uh, about their interactions with that athlete as well to understand the problem from these different angles. Um, when you're in that situation, how do you challenge uh whenever you've got a different uh, view, either from you've got a different result in the questionnaire than the conversation you've had. So I'll give you an example. Recently, I had uh, an athlete and the scores on the questionnaire came back very low. I'm not going to reveal what the questionnaire was, but the scores were very low. But my conversation was actually at a top level in terms of what I was picking up through my own skills. Uh, and it left me in this state of dissonance of w- which do I believe? I mean, what would be your approach or have you dealt with scenarios like that? And how, how do you, you know, rectify that? So what you've got is a situation of um, when you, there's all sorts of reasons why people will impression manage. I always remember learning the fact that as a psychologist, if I said to someone at an Olympic village, how are you feeling? They were why? Do I look do I look odd? Do I look nervous? Yeah. I remember working in international rugby and the night before the game was a bunch of very, very large men in t-shirts and shorts, watching a TV, watching a video, and not looking at each other because they didn't want to show the other bloke that they were nervous. So it, it was like one of those Egyptian half hours with everybody sort of looking like that, never <laughs> looking at each other. So people are very, very conscious of impression management. So when I see what you've just described, and you see it an awful lot, you go, hmm, okay, and you make a note of it. Of course, the other thing that happens in performance psychology is that the relationship loops in performance psychology are a lot longer than they are in some other areas of psychology. So you and I are trained in REBT. REBT is typically yes, let's do this, let's work for this many sessions, and then we'll see how we are, yeah? The relationships in – I mean, I've had clients for 14 years, yeah? I haven't been working on the same problems. I'm not that bad. Um, (laughs) We've we've moved on, something else and something else and something else, and that's fine, yeah? And then we've worked on non-sporting issues. But it's the triangulation of what what you're saying, what you're hearing, what you're seeing. Okay, so – So if if someone's going, my my results on the questionnaire are low – I'm, I have a performance mindset. If when you talk to them, they're going, flipping it, look at the size of him, yeah? And if when I watch them, they're getting stuck in, I'm going, okay, I make a note. So if they're nervous and they don't want to tell me they're nervous, that's okay, yeah? Because I'll, you know, eventually we'll get there, yeah? yeah? Because we're looking at a long-term relationship. If, however, it's their Olympic final on Saturday – I'm certainly, you know, I'm certainly not going to try and unpack stuff just for the sake of a hunch to check a hunch I've got. Because my job is to make them as good as possible and then to look for the teachable moments, which might come after they've had a success or after they've had a failure or whatever. Okay. That helps massively. I mean, you've made it very clear and, you know, you've explained that in a way that a trainee sports psych would really pick up on. It's like the three, three areas of form of understanding the problem uh, and not just one or two areas but then also like you, you hit on something else which is when to act and when not to act and what what you've just elicited in me is 
what's the wh- when should I do something and act as a coach or as a sports psychologist to help a player versus not? Now, obviously, you know, ten seconds before the event is is not. But how do you make that judgment and switch? And, and you know, what's your experience of trying to manipulate, as you say earlier on, change and improve somebody's mindset? What's your experience of doing that uh, in the sort of training environment and then up to the competition environment at what point do you switch and go we no longer try and change we're there to solidify you know and how do you negotiate that complexity there is um an awful lot of uh that being done by feel there are however some pretty common sense you know principles that you might do i mean i i know of at least three um skilled practitioners working with someone to refine their technique on the morning of a of an olympic competition who's that for um that's pretty obvious i think you you in most cases for me or in all cases i will have seen this athlete enough and she or he will have worked with me enough that we can spot differences and differences are big but differences that might have an impact because um, when you, especially you're working with with super elites, very often they only come alive or they only they only show certain patterns of behaviour in the Olympic finals. So I think there are a set of principles. Secondly, there's a number of factors that would come out that you would go, uh, let's you know, let's think how this person is now acting out of the ordinary, and you may well talk to the coach as someone who's also involved in that decision. And you know that you can consult with people confidentially, but then finally you go with a feel. Hmm. But developing that sense of feel is part of a good supervisory process. Yeah. So actually developing your own feel. It's, it's why I think that performance psychologists don't have to, but it's a heck of an advantage if they've been performers. So up until this point, we've really been talking about winning mentality from an individual point of view. But what about teams? What about the coach of a team? A coach who might be listening to this and is thinking, okay, well, how do I develop a winning team mentality? Dave, Hugh, what are the sort of things that you might talk about there? You know, what do you guys think about that? I think there is both for the individual and the team and the sport, there's a level of integrity. There's a level of honesty. This is what we're trying to achieve. I had to cut athletes from funding. I had to tell athletes that their dream was over. And I hated doing it, but I did it. And I sat across the table from them and I talked them through it. And I gave them early warning at what might happen and gave them a chance to change it. And I took coaches from positions and promoted coaches to other positions. But I was... I hope, and the fact that these guys still talk to me, phone me up and ask me for advice or see how I am, suggests that I did it in a straight fashion. And, and I, think that, I think that's big, Pete. I think that if I'm a coach and I'm not picking you, I'm telling you why I'm not picking you, and I'm taking the time and the trouble to tell you what you need to do to get picked. And now, why are we together? We're together to perform. If we're a high-level team, we're a professional team, that's fine. We're together to perform. Gosh, I, you know, when I was a teacher, I had, you know, I, I, I would remember, because all my rugby teams, and this was in a comprehensive in Milton Keynes, they'd all, they all picked the team. I didn't. I sat on the selection committee, but they elected a captain, and they elected a vice captain, and there was a couple of other boys, and they all sat there, and they selected the team. And then they put up, they, they drew up, they said, well, how are we going to choose? They said, oh, gosh, yeah, right, sir. This is old, old school teaching. So, oh, well, here's our rules. You know, you don't, no, no train, no play, normally. Do, and, and, and away they went. And, and these, these kids were immensely mature and straightforward in doing what they did. So I don't, th- I don't find this a, a difficult ethic. I find it sometimes, sorry, no, I don't find it a challenging ethic. I find it, a di- some people might find it difficult because it involves looking across the table and going, I'm really, I'm really sorry, son, you dropped. But that's what it's all about. So for me, 
it's it's that integrity. It's the ability to look someone in the eye, ask the difficult questions, and wait for the difficult answers. A straightness. Yeah, and I guess you're kind of modelling the characteristics that you want to see in your athletes as well. You know, that integrity and honesty, and you know, by you modelling that as a coach, as a leader, you're kind of hoping that that's going to influence their that their own kind of behaviours as well, right? You see, I don't think. I, I was convinced before I was a, before I was a performance director. I'd done several you know, several tours, as it were. I'd done several Olympics. I'd been with several head coaches and performance directors. I'd looked at the system. I'd been around the block, and I didn't think, and I still don't believe that to be an effective performance director or head coach, you have to be an ass. I'm convinced there is a way you can do it, whereby you are friendly but straight. You're not too friendly, but you are straight with people that says, this is where you are, this is what's going on. And that's what I want in the performance environment. I want an, a, an openness and honesty, which for me was one of the principles of why of sport. That, that's interesting, Dave, about you say about the players picking the team. That's a re- really valuable point for any coach listening because one of the most frustrating environments that I've been in is uh, in a GAA club where you're told uh, this is how we are at the start of the season. You don't train, you don't play, and then it comes championship and the the manager's uh, positions have changed and how they select the team. And it's it, it creates this uncertainty and unfairness and, and then promotes bickering and everything else. And you've solved all that just by that simple action of, of having the players set the rules of selection. And in a way, that integrity of setting a clear landscape of this is how we conduct business and you're going to help us decide how we conduct business and it will all be transparent. I like to say transparency is the best uh, disinfectant for corruption or, in, or lack of integrity. Um, and again, that's what your process outlines. Like it's a simple solution. Um, but it's it's nice to hear that you've used the term integrity. But again, it's an, a term that you know we have to operationalize, as you say, create definitions and what are the behaviors associated with integrity. And you have to find that well by giving the message straight to the person, saying it like it is, but also maintaining that uh, personability and, and uh, ability to talk talk with people. Dave, thank you very much. This has been excellent and will be of use to everyone. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, this has been absolutely fantastic, Dave. And I'm sure our listeners really appreciate your time and your words. Thank you very much indeed. We've we've covered a lot of ground today. We started off by asking whether or not there was such a thing as a winning mindset. I'm not 100% sure that we've answered that question, but we did talk about the idea that it's much more complicated than just a set of personality characteristics and that winners certainly aren't born. Our guest, Dave Collins, talked about the PCDE model, Psychological Characteristics of Developing Excellence, whereby a winning mindset can be thought of as more of a a set of skills that we can use at various times according to what the situation might demand. We talked about popular ideas like the Mamba mentality that require an almost obsessive dedication. And we discussed some of the potential dangers of people subscribing to that type of mentality and seeing that as something to to strive towards when passion becomes obsessive rather than healthy. But maybe there's a little bit of obsession needed to reach the highest height. So maybe there's actually a bit of a balance that we need to find there. But is a winning mentality about on the day, moment to moment success? Or is it more of a long term thing, something that allows success over a sustained period of time? Maybe it's both. I think one thing that we all agreed on is that the pathway to success is really complicated. It varies from sport to sport, it varies from athlete to athlete, and pretty much every set of individual circumstances is going to be different. So the idea of boiling all of that complexity down into a particular winning mindset that we can all strive towards actually just seems a little bit far-fetched. Instead, perhaps we need to identify the psychological characteristics that might be needed for a particular athlete in a particular context at a particular time. And for that, we need a thorough appreciation of that context. I hope you've enjoyed listening today. If you have, please do subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. And you can tweet us at EPM Podcast on Twitter. 
obviously on Twitter, that's why I said you can tweet us, and you can leave us a comment on the website too, which is 80percentmentalallwords.com. I really hope you've enjoyed what we've been talking about today, and hopefully we'll see you next time. Well, I won't see you. It's a podcast.